This is Global Storyline with your host, Dean W. Arnold, where we examine events current and past and place them in the Global Storyline. Tonight's guest is James Perloff. He's the author of The Shadows of Power. That's an expose on the Council on Foreign Relations. That book has sold over 100,000 copies. He's also written two books about the evidence against Darwin's theory of evolution. One of them is called Tornado in a Junkyard. He wrote for the New American Magazine for nearly 30 years. Uh, His newest book is Truth is a Lonely Warrior, which is a comprehensive look at the occult-motivated drive for world government. He also wrote the script for Free Mind Films' latest documentary, Shadow Rain. I consider uh, you can uh, see his work at jamesperloff.com, James, P-E-R-L-O-F-F.com. I consider James to be one of the most compelling writers and speakers today in the media, and uh, it's a privilege to talk to him today. Uh, how are you doing, James? I'm doing good, and uh, after listening to your uh, interview with Jay Dyer, I was quite impressed, and uh, very happy to come on uh, the show with you. It uh, sounds like a really uh, well-informed uh, Christian well, thank you very much. I want to ask you a question. Do you go by Jim or James? Uh, you, uh, most of these interviews, they call me James. Okay, but, uh, yeah, I got know, you. In the, in, most in, informal conversations, in it's Jim. In the deep inner yeah. circle. All right, when you're, at the, yeah. we, we, when you're meeting with your <laughs> After secret... After you get the secret password. I was going to say, when you, when you meet with the secret society <laughs> brethren, it's Jim. Okay, um, so our, uh, our topic today is uh, Christian Zionism. Um, and this mm-hmm. is based on a very lengthy article that James uh, recently published uh, which exposes and criticizes the false and the flawed idea that Israel has a biblical right to the land of Palestine and that the Jews today continue today as God's chosen people uh, and are continuing the kingdom of God in a sort of a Jewish track as opposed to the Christian track. And his article talks about the great harm that that idea has caused modern Christians who champion this false theology and how it so heavily shapes uh, foreign policy today. So it's a it's a heck of a topic. Uh, there's all sorts of uh, asset uh, aspects to it. it. There's a lot of landmines you can step on. Uh, I, sh- I encourage everybody uh, who hasn't to read the article. Uh, it's at jamesperloff.com. Uh, you may want to read it before you uh, listen to this podcast. It's the it's one of the reasons I asked Jim to do uh, James <laughs> to do this podcast is because it's one of the best things I've ever seen. I've been studying this subject for a long, long time. It's so complex. It's so difficult. It has to be handled with care. There's so many sides to the argument, and, and he covered every one in a in a short piece. You know, it's not a book, uh, and and so. But he's a great communicator. You'll see that. So that's that's what what I wanted to mention. I want to um, <clears throat> I want you to go ahead and and start where you want to start on this topic. Um, you might want to give us a brief understanding, I mean, like 30 seconds of what kind of Christian you are so people can kind of get a read on that. But I want to give one caveat before we get started, which is I'm a, a very uh, dedicated member of the Orthodox Church, Eastern Orthodox, like Greek Orthodox. I'm technically part of the Orthodox Church of America. Um, I do not speak for the church. I'm not a priest. Uh, I'm a guy who's really uh, into his church and loves theology and loves to look into it, loves to research and loves to talk about it. Uh, neither is James uh, speaking for the church. He doesn't belong to the Eastern Orthodox Church, um, so he can't. But uh, so uh, the metaphor I want to give, this is going to be a very theolo- uh, theology scripture laden uh, podcast tonight. And so the, the metaphor I want to give for everybody is that uh, five or 10 people at work hanging around the water cooler 
and talking religion, talking politics. Maybe a couple of the guys have had the opportunity and the time to do a little more research than everybody else, so they're kind of talking about it and going back and forth. Everybody else is kind of listening and interested. So that's the metaphor I have, so that I just want to start with that. Uh, so I'm not pretending to have more authority to what I share and talk about than some people might uh, consider I, I might be advancing. So with that caveat, uh, caveat uh, why don't you go ahead and uh, start where you want to start and let's get going. Okay, I actually want to start with some caveats. Uh, <laughs> you know, the um, Christian Zionism was infiltrated into what we call the fundamentalist churches. And so the first caveat is that... Um, I want to mention uh, this article is actually called Part Two of the War on Christianity. Part One was about modernism. And I just want to make sure that the fundamentalists who might be listening in understand that um, I'm not singling them out because I actually think that if you've got a choice, obviously, between a modernist and a fundamentalist church, you're much better off at a fundamentalist church. The, let's just mention just briefly the modernists uh, before we transition over uh, and, and let to me, the. And, and let me pick, hmm. piggyback off that. I agree with you. Hmm? Um, uh, yeah, we, we're not picking on the fundamentalists. Um, uh, I've, uh, I'm a big fan of fundamentalists. I grew up a fundamentalist in many ways. Right. And, mm -hmm. and in the culture wars and all sorts of things, fu fundamentalists are huge allies. And, uh, and, right. and many, many, many uh, if not most or whatever, fundamentalists really love the Lord and are really seeking God. So this isn't, a, this isn't a singling them out or whatever. This is just when the, when the, when the enemy has has started to sneak his way and when the when the snake has slithered into the church a little bit and the, <laughs> the, the, the camel's got his nose in there you know in you know in the really good places where where jesus and the bible is being taught that's a that's an alarming thing and so that's what this show's about yeah uh a lot of my writing of course has been on the new world order that's uh what uh my latest book truth is a lonely warrior is about and uh uh they have definitely infiltrated uh, into religion and uh, into the churches. Uh, we know that the sort of the, the head of the, uh, the uh, Luciferian uh, New World Order, uh, financially speaking, is the Rothschilds, and they have their satellites in America. They had their J.P. Morgans and the Rockefellers, and the Rockefellers were the ones who funded the modernist movement. And you had this, uh, around 1900, you had this uh, fundamentalist modernist split um, just to uh, explain why they had to uh, downgrade Christianity, and that's what modernism uh, did. Uh, you know, you look at modernism, and you're familiar with Charles Augustus Briggs uh, and the introducing higher criticism. But basically, what the modernists started to say in America in the late 1800s was that um, the Bible wasn't really the Word of God; it was full of errors. Um, they challenged the divinity of Christ. He did not die in atonement for our sins. He didn't do any miracles. There's no virgin birth. There's no resurrection. There won't be any second coming. Now, you know, if you've ever read, I know you must have been to a lot of Bible studies. I certainly have. And people will really argue over, it's the Apostle Paul, though, something he says is kind of a gray area, and you can debate it one way or the other. But that's not what the modernists were doing. They were actually attacking every fundamental doctrine of the Christian faith. And as I look back on this, I sort of um, reverse engineered what the Rockefellers were doing. And I realized that because Christianity is unique, offering salvation through Jesus Christ and his, the uniqueness of his resurrection and his miracles, they had to downgrade it because they wanted to create a one world religion. The, uh, a world power is about consolidation, you know, so uh, they want a one world government. And you know that the EU, which came out of the common market, 
and the uh, the proposed North American Union, which is supposed to come out of NAFTA. These are just stepping stones to go towards political consolidation. You see a consolidation in the business world where you've got all these mergers. So you had the um, the Rockefellers take their uh, Chase Bank and they merged it with the Warburgs. Manhattan Bank, of course, Paul Warburg was the founder of the Federal Reserve. And then uh, Chase Manhattan merged with uh, J.P. Morgan and became J.P. Morgan Chase. You know, if you have fewer and fewer corporations, they're merging. They also want mergers of religions to get them all under control. And that's what ecumenicism is. And so there were, Rockefellers were very behind ecumenicism. And, but to get Christianity uh, to blend with other faiths had to be downgraded into just another religion. You had to take out that divinity of Christ and the uniqueness of Christianity. So that's what, uh, why they started funding uh, seminaries like Union Theological in New York City to downgrade the faith. Uh, um, well, didn't you have a connection in your article between Rockefeller and uh, one of the uh, founding fathers of modernism? Went to his church, he funded them or something? Uh, we're, uh, when we're talking about uh, Harry Emerson Fosdick, yes, just make, uh, mention Harry, that connection. Yeah. You start, yeah. you know, you you begin the show by citing the Rothschilds and the and the Rockefellers, and there's some people who will track with you, but other people are like, what? But yeah. so a couple anecdotes like that are helpful. Let, let's let's uh, make these connections. Uh, in 1922, there was a pastor named Harry Emerson Fosdick, and at the First Presbyterian Church of New York, he gave this uh, sermon called "Shall the Fundamentalists Win?" and he attacked. Uh, all the fundamentals, well, several of the fundamentals of the Christian faith, and he said the people who held these views were intolerant. Well, he was expelled from that church after a heresy investigation, but he was immediately hired as a pastor of John D. Rockefeller's Riverside Church, and John D. Rockefeller paid for 130,000 copies of his sermon to be distributed uh, to Protestant ministers, and the uh, most telling point, I think, is the fact that Harry Emerson Fosdick's brother Raymond was uh, uh, head of the Rockefeller Foundation for 12 years. Right. So right. there's a Rockefeller connection. The other side of that, before we move on to Christian Zionism, is that to get churches to ecumenicize and combine with each other, you need a structure, a platform. So that's where the Rockefellers funded what was called the Federal Council of Churches, which became the National Council of Churches. And the spearhead for that was um, a Rockefeller in-law, John Foster Dulles. He was, his, his uh, wife was a co first cousin of the Ro Rockefellers. And this guy is a globalist without peer. He was uh, chief counsel to the American delegation of the Paris Peace Conference, which proposed the League of Nations. He was a founding member of the Council on Foreign Relations, which is what my book, The Shadows of Power, is about. That's the chief supplier of cabinet members to the uh, U.S. government uh, since it was founded and uh, also his primary goal is the world government. He contributed uh, articles to its uh, flagship journal, Foreign Affairs, from the very first issue in 1922. He was the attorney who defended Harry Emerson Fosdick at his heresy trial. He helped write the UN Charter. And, uh, of course, he was Secretary of State under Eisenhower when his brother, Alan Dulles, was head of the CIA and president of the Council on Foreign Relations. You don't get much more establishment than that. And I'll just add that's, that. That's connected. That's connected. It does connect. In 1948, he went to Amsterdam to help found the World Council of Churches, which was uh, funded by the Rockefeller and uh, Carnegie Foundations. And I should mention that John Foster Dulles was many years uh, chairman of the trustees of the Rockefeller Foundation and also president of the Carnegie Endowment, uh, which funded the World Council of Churches. So World Council, you go from National Council of Churches to World Council of Churches. This is all about ecumenicism, all about one world religion. That's, in brief, modernism and the Rockefeller side. Dulles was Fosdick's attorney? 
Yeah, uh, his heresy trap. He's all over the place. That's amazing. That's so they, they, that, these guys are so busy, you think they must have a clone sometimes. I'm that, just joking. That's really, I mean, that's that's really helpful anecdote for just immediately helping people get a sense that this isn't just this isn't just some rich people who give a little bit of money to their religion and stuff just mm-hmm. to kind of look good. These are active, very deliberate folks who've got some serious plans. Uh, who are connected on both sides of the aisle in terms of politics and religion. That's really an awesome anecdote. I want to give you one little thing before you get into Zionism. Uh, uh, I didn't expect to share this real quick, but I uh, I just finished a, a documentary, full feature documentary about a year and a half ago uh, that uh, uh, some uh, about half of it is about my third great grandfather who uh, invented the, the, the sleeping car, which is how uh, Andrew, Andrew Carnegie made his fortune. And if you read uh, Andrew Carnegie's uh, autobiography, he says, my fortune started because I was in, the, in this train one day and I saw this little man over in the corner with a green bag and he had this model of a sleeping car. And I asked him what it was and he showed it to me and immediately a light came off and I had this aha moment and I realized, ah, here's the future and here's where everything's going to go. And, and so I helped him and uh, we struck the deal and you know the rest is history and that was the beginning of my fortune. That's what Carnegie says in his uh, autobiography. Uh, my my third great grandfather's name is T.T. Uh, T. Woodruff, Theodore Tuttle Woodruff. <coughs> Excuse me. Well, the truth is, Woodruff already had a company going. He was quite a distinguished guy. Uh, he had uh, sleeping cars on twenty different railroads railroads before he ever met Carnegie. Carnegie made up the story out of whole cloth. Oh. And uh, and Carnegie, uh, I mean, a Woodruff uh, when he met Carnegie was in uh, litigation with George Pullman who had copied his patent and just started making train cars and competing with him without, without anything. The, the way of the world. Yes. And, uh, and so when Carnegie finally bought enough stock to have controlling interest in Woodruff's company, he went over, shook hands with George Pullman, uh, struck a deal with him, kicked Woodruff out of the company and, uh, <laughs> and went on to make billions of dollars. And then, uh, and so my, my, my grandfather was uh, fighting him in court for the next, couple of decades and then one day he died mysteriously on a tr- in a train yard when he was uh really ramping up the uh the ammo so uh it's a it's a fascinating little story but uh <clears throat> so i do have a little bit of personal connection to these uh robber barons and the and, and these same guys who who built these foundations that have been critical to shaping the 20th century as uh, uh you certainly do and it's just interesting you mentioned the autobiography of andrew carnegie because i quote from that in my books on Darwinism and in my PowerPoints on it, which I'll be giving at my church actually just in a, a couple of weeks, because in that autobiography, he attributes his atheism to the teachings of Charles Darwin. Um, and I uh, often employ that quote as an example of how Darwinism helped to generate atheism in America. But that's a whole different story. We can even, we can do a show around that, too. Um, but in any event, uh, you had this fundamentalist uh, modernist split, because as the modernists were attacking the fundamental doctrines. There are other people who say, well, well, we're going to stand by the Bible. We're going to do what's right. We believe the Bible is the word of God. We do believe in the resurrection. But um, you've always got to be looking over your shoulder, and it turns out that uh, these guys got infiltrated too. And uh, the two um, characters we kind of want to focus on tonight are going to be um, briefly John Nelson Darby, but mostly Cyrus Schofield, the author of the Sarah Schofield Bible, but here's where I have to put up a couple more caveats at the beginning. Uh, One is that people who criticize Zionism or criticize the modern state of Israel or 
are almost knee-jerk criticized of being anti-Semitic. So I just want to bring out the fact that I'm half Jewish myself. Perloff is actually an Americanization of Perlovsky. The Perloffs were a Russian Jewish family. My mother was not Jewish, but my father was. Um, so I'm half Jewish. I'm not motivated by anti-Semitism. Let's lay that on the table at the beginning. I'm 100% against racism of any kind. The uh, other thing, the um, um, the um, other caveat uh, that I wanted to uh, mention is that when I speak about uh, Zionism, I am not in any way condemning all Jews or suggesting that obviously many Jews are not Zionists. As a matter of fact, my father, I didn't even know he was Jewish until I was in my 20s because he didn't talk about it. None of his friends were Jews. He um, never went to synagogue. And he, I don't remember ever mentioning Israel once. So there are, he was an Americanized Jew is what he was. And there are many Americanized Jews or assimilated Jews and other cultures. So although I'm going to be talking about Talmudic and Zionist Jews and their particular agenda with Israel, I'm not in any way uh, blanket stereotyping Jews. So I just want to make that clear as well. We're talking about an individual agenda that has been supported by certain people. Yeah, it's like talking about how terrible America is to go into the Middle East and kill all kinds of Iraqis mm. and stuff. I mean, uh, you know, half or more or whatever of the Americans I know on the street, they're against it too. You know, you can't just make blanket right. statements, but there are true movements and ideolo ideologies and political forces that do evil things that you have to point out. Right. By the way, I guess I should make a minor technical caveat. I know when Jay Dyer was on your show, he was smoking a cigarette. And I was laughing because he said, okay, now we're going to lose these various denominations. And you're right, in the right, right. So I just want to mention that uh, what I'm drinking tonight looks kind of like a beer, but it's, it's actually uh, uh, Reed's uh, Extra Ginger Brew. I just good on the throat. My throat okay, gets dry well, real well, quickly. Well, you just lost a whole bunch of Christians. Because no, 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 no. That's, because that's because non alcoholic. That's what I'm saying. It's, it's, it's ginger ale. You just, you just, you just <laughs> lost a bunch of drinking Christians. <laughs> okay. Well, you're right. Uh, no matter what our habits are, there's bound to be people who don't share those habits who are going to lose. So, uh, again, uh, that's one of those sacrifices we make uh, in media. All right. So, with all our caveats out of the way, Let's talk um, a little bit um, about uh, the theology that, uh, well, I've got their pictures here. Um, I'm not really versed in uh, using graphics, but, you know, John Nelson Darby. was found, That, that, found, work, that works it? just fine. Go ahead. That's okay. Uh, founder of uh, dispensationalism. And then his disciple, Cyrus Schofield, who wrote the very influential uh, Schofield uh, reference Bible. Um, now, and, and, and uh, we won't go I want to stop you just for a second. Uh, a lot of people will know what you're talking about with Schofield Reference Bible, but a lot of people won't. Um, but we, uh, up until probably like 1975, before churches started to get you know a little bit cooler and a little bit cooler and a little bit cooler, uh, almost every church you'd go to anywhere, I mean, almost every church, you'd go in there and you'd have your typical church, you know, little country church, whatever, you got you know, two sets of pews on both sides and you walk down the middle and the whole thing. And then behind the pew, you'd have this little rack and you'd have a couple of hymnals. And in the middle, you'd have this black book, which was a Bible. And like 98% of the time, it was a Schofield Bible. Uh, and so, and this, and a Schofield Bible is a Bible that has little footnotes and commentaries all throughout the Bible that uh, kind of help you uh, explain and understand what the Bible is. Well, 
this was this was so. I mean, it's like Google today. I mean, for Christianity, the, Sco- <laughs> the Schofield Bible was just ubiquitous. There's a, there's a word. So I just want it's, for people who aren't familiar with it, it was a huge phenomenon and had a major shaping on evangelical Christianity, Bible Belt Christianity, etc. Right. Now I'm going to have to try and top you to find a bigger word than ubiquitous. Okay. Um, Good now, luck. Uh, <laughs> um, uh, no, William, William F. Buckley, I'm not. But anyway, uh, Darby and uh, Schofield developed a theology, and we won't go over all claims of this theology, but for our purposes tonight, one of the major claims was that God wanted the Jews to return to Palestine, and that this was what the Bible was, in fact, commanding. And another thing they said that I'll just mention, even though we're not really going to go into it, but I think it was very har- harmful, was they preached this doctrine of separation that Christians should not involve themselves with movies and uh, business and politics because those are worldly things that should be left in the hands of worldly people. And we can all see what the impact of, of sep- Christians separating themselves from the culture has been uh, in the world we see today. But they also had... Uh, uh, Darby is largely considered the father of not only dispensationalism, which separates history into seven different dispensations, of which supposedly we're just in the sixth now, but he's also largely credited with um, fostering the idea of the rapture, the pre-trib rapture that we're, you know Christians will be raptured off the planet before the Antichrist gets his gig going, um, as it were. So these are some of the things that they were saying. And um, just to explain how Christian Zionism fits into this new world order, uh, you know, we, uh, we haven't really gone into it yet. But, of course, the Bible does talk about the beast and the uh, Antichrist. And, uh, of course, uh, you had actually emailed me. We emailed a little bit back and forth about the preterist view. And this is a, I think we, we agree that there were certain things that were definitely fulfilled in 70 AD in Jerusalem, but some not everything in Revelation or what in Jesus' word has yet been fulfilled. And I think there's a general consensus amongst most Christians that there will be a ruling of this beast over the world. And of course, to govern the world, you need a world government. And that's where you get these stepping stones of NAFTA and the EU and these uh, global, uh, the League of Nations, the UN, are all stepping stones in that direction. It's really, in other words, the Antichrist isn't going to just show up and say, presto, here's my world government. It's actually being built for him right now. But uh, where Christian Zionism comes in is every government has to have a capital, like our capital is in Washington, D.C. Well, world government would have its capital in Jerusalem. We know that uh, from this Rothschild agenda, we know that the Rothschilds were built, were buying land in Palestine as early as 1829, and they wanted to create greater Israel. And this is why in 1897, Theodor Herzl started in Switzerland hosting the Zionist Congresses. And this is also why in 1917, the British government issued to Lord Walter Rothschild the Balfour Declaration. This is in the middle of World War, or in the latter part, actually, of uh, World War One. The uh, Zionists had promised uh, the British government that they would bring America into the war on Brit- Britain's side if Britain would secure Palestine as a homeland for Jews. And that's what the Balfour Declaration was all about. And if you ever watched the movie Lawrence of Arabia... Uh, there was there was no military value in invading Palestine. It was to, it was to fulfill this this pledge to the to the Zionists. That's why it happened. Now the reason that you've got the Schofield Reference Bible coming out. Now let me stop you that, before you get to Schofield. Oh, sure. A couple of things. Um, 
I, I hope you're agreeing that I'm right. Just oh, yeah, everything you say is right. Do you have, uh, you don't have to have an answer for everything uh, handy, but um, uh, do you have any source or quote for this uh, saying that the uh, New, New World Order wants Jerusalem as its headquarters? I don't have it handy, but I've certainly seen that in, in all the research that I've done. Um, there is, uh, there's no question about that. Yeah, I don't, have, I don't want to have it handy, but I've seen it uh, several times. I've come across it too, but I just wondered if you had that handy. Now, secondly, um, uh, some people, I'll, I'll do the counter, you know, some people will say, well, what's so bad about finding a, a homeland for the Jews? Uh, well, what's uh, bad about it is that uh, the Rothschilds have been behind uh, every major war. Uh, we're going to connect them later to to, uh, to 9-11 and, and connect Israel to that as well. And it's almost as if uh, Israel is a proxy state for the New World Order that uh, they've been behind. We're talking about a great deal of evil that's not only being perpetrated against uh, the people of uh, Gaza and the Palestinians, but uh, this whole New World Order is centered there. There's uh, uh, nothing wrong with Jews having a homeland of their own except uh, when they start to steal it from other people. I think that's the best uh, and answer use it probably, as, yeah. Use, <laughs> yeah, use it as a, also as a headquarters for uh, fomenting false flags through the Mossad and other things that we'll, we'll probably be getting into yeah, in this Yeah, but I think, I think the main answer is, you know, if, if the world had gotten together and everyone would have agreed, yes, we'd like to carve out this space for Jews, um, mm-hmm. uh, and uh, then that, you know, in, in a certain sense, that would be fine. But what happened was just a couple of countries decided to just kind of bulldoze out the Palestinians and, mm-hmm. and, repl- and, and then allow the Jews to live there. And it was it was stealing of land and displacing of peoples against their will, and it's right. it, it you know hundred years later we're still got all co- kinds of conflict and wars because of it. Right. In fact, the Belfort Declaration specified that nothing should be done that would infringe upon the the rights of the current residents of Palestine. That obviously was uh, that provision of the uh, Belfort Declaration was completely neglected. But you're quite right. Uh, nothing wrong with Jews having a homeland, and in fact, uh, in Palestine, Jews, Muslims, and uh, Christians lived peaceably uh, before the arrival of the Zionists and before the creation of the Zionist state in 1948. Nothing wrong with them having a homeland as long as they had, uh, if they had been respectful of the rights of the Palestinians and worked out a peaceful solution with them, that would have been acceptable in and of itself. But there seems there's a much broader agenda and uh, the importance. Uh, the, the, the very Middle Eastern wars we're fighting right now have been more than just about oil uh, and more than about um, uh, fighting terrorism uh, through these, uh, what are actually false flag events. It's about carving out greater Israel uh, in the plan that Theodore Herzl developed in uh, this, these uh, Switzerland uh, Zionist Congresses. So we'll, we'll be getting into that. Okay. But um, so John Nelson Darby um, is kind of the founder of this. And uh, the original research I did years ago was from uh, Dr. John Coleman, former officer in MI6, who pointed out that he was uh, an employee of uh, the British East India Company, which was owned by the Rothschilds or largely owned by the Rothschilds and was the largest multinational corporation of its day. And there was also a, a Freemason and a Satanist. And as a matter of fact, he does refer to God as the architect, which is, you know, we know it's what the Freemasons call God. And he also uh, was a Satanist, and uh, he actually wrote a Satanic Bible. And uh, I, uh, 
I didn't want to dwell on it in my um, article. So if you go to my article called The War on Christianity, uh, Part 2, Christian Zionism, I, uh, I have a hyperlink there to a major piece which shows the satanic content and nature of that Bible. But I'll give you just one example for, for tonight. Um, in uh, the King James rendering of John six sixty nine, Peter said to Jesus, And we believe and are sure that thou art that Christ, the Son of the living God. Now, Darby rendered that, and we have believed and known that thou art the Holy One of God. Well, in the King James, the only people who call Jesus the Holy One of God consistent, uh, and consistently do so are the demons. So what Darby is doing there is taking the words of demons and putting the mouths of P- Peter uh, the Apostle. And this is something he does throughout that Bible. You need to go to it. But um, Darby was the father of, you know, the basically the rapture concept of... Uh, the whole dispensationalism and he was uh, uh, a leader or the leader of what they called the Plymouth Brethren that was spreading these ideas in the uh, 19th century and that Schofield came out of. Schofield is going to be our main focus because he's the one that created that Schofield reference Bible that you were elucidating on that was in so many churches for so long. Uh, And just to provide a little context, up until the early 1800s with Darby, um, there really was no serious established belief anywhere in Christendom of the idea of a pre-trib rapture, the idea of a thousand year reign of Christ that followed the church age. These were all uh, not believed by the historic church. There was even a council and I think 431, a church council that condemned the, uh, the belief called Kiliasm, right. um, which was, which is the physical thousand year reign of Christ uh, the church basically said that the creed says that his uh, the reign of Christ is eternal uh, and will never end. And so, if you got a thousand year reign where he's physically on the earth, it's like he's he's uh, it's only for a thousand years. the The church has always taught historically that Christ, when he ascended to the right hand of the Father at the ascension, uh, that's that that kingdom has started now and will will rule forever and ever. And the thousand years that's mentioned only one time, which is in the book of Revelation one time, uh, is metaphorical. That's a symbolic book. It's metaphorical of the reign of Christ forever. And this has always been the historic teaching of solid, stable, thoughtful Christianity. Uh, You know, the historic Orthodox Church, the Catholic Church, the other traditional churches all held this. Martin Luther didn't hold it. Calvin didn't hold it. None of these people hold this crazy doctrine. Then all of a sudden in the 1820s, this very suspect character, uh, Darby, and then followed by Schofield that you're going to tell us more about, they invent this whole new thing called dispensationalism, called the pre-trib rapture, called the uh, millennium thousand-year physical reign of Christ. Uh, None of it, it, it's it's uh, it's it's all heresy, but go ahead. Um, I'm so glad you said that, you know, uh, we're really uh, on the same wavelength here. And uh, it's interesting you mentioned the condemnation of Kiliasm, uh, because I have in my article on Christian Zionism, I have an embedded clip from Brother Nathaniel, who, as you know, is um, not only an an insightful political commentator, also is someone who was Jewish and converted to uh, Eastern Orthodox himself. And he talks about the condemnation of Kiliasm 
in that clip that's in my article on Christian Zionism. So I've listened to a lot of Brother Nathaniel. He's very sharp. Now I got to give another caveat since you brought him up. First of all, I think he uh, he, he gives the date as three eighty one. He has the wrong date, but that's okay. That's not a big deal. Oh. But he is um, he's actually there's been uh, some Orthodox uh, uh, leadership that has basically warned people away from him because he's done, he's said some things that aren't quite right. And he's also wearing the uniform of a, uh, like an Orthodox priest and he's not one. And, mm-hmm. uh, and he's done a few things that just aren't quite kosher, uh, uh no pun intended. And, uh, uh, so I just want to, he, he's a, he's a little bit of a suspect character out there. Uh, I, I, uh, when I do research, I, I, I get, truth and fantastic research and facts from all sorts of suspect characters. Um, so I'm able to separate the truth out from the, you know, the, the character themselves. So I, I do uh, get some material from him, but I, but since you bring, brought him up, I just had to bring that up as a caveat. Okay, sure. Uh, well, the more caveats we get, uh, I, you know, the, I think probably the, the more we tweak and fine tune things and get a little closer to the truth, uh, because the truth does often require a lot of vetting, um, to uh, and uh, testing uh, to to get to it, and uh, perhaps that's something where uh, Brother Nathaniel is just uh, still on part of his own spiritual journey, and maybe he'll, if uh, I don't I don't uh, uh, know his background uh, 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 that well, I, I really enjoyed his political commentary, he's but great, maybe he's, he's a still great, he's yeah, a great yeah, communicator, and he yes. really lays out some fantastic information. So I got to give him credit. Right, um, but thanks for sharing that with me. Um, well, let's move on to Cyrus Schofield. Um, I want to, um, first of all, uh, uh, give people some interesting quotes. This is a little bit about this guy's background, and these are coming out of um, newspapers from the 1880s. This is from the Atchison Globe in 1881. Uh, uh, so C.I. Schofield, who was appointed United States District Attorney for Kansas in 1873 and turned out worse than any other Kansas official, is now a preacher in Missouri. His wife and two children live in Atchison. He contributes nothing to their support except good advice. And then that same year, the Topeka Daily Capital said, quote, Sarah Schofield, formerly of Kansas, late lawyer, politician, and shyster generally, has come to the surface again and promises once more to gather around himself that halo of notoriety that made him so prominent in the past, the last personal knowledge that Kansans had of this peer among Scalawags was about four years ago after a series of forgeries and confidence games. He left the state in a destitute family and took refuge in Canada. For a time, he kept undercover, nothing being heard of him until the last two years when he turned up in St. Louis, where he had a wealthy widowed sister living who has generally come to the front and squared up Cyrus's little foilies, sorry, little follies and foibles by paying good round sums of money. Within the past year, however, Cyrus committed a series of St. Louis forgeries that could not be settled so easily. And the erratic young gentleman was compelled to linger in the St. Louis jail for a period of six months, unquote. Um, so his, uh, not to say you have to believe everything in a newspaper of that day, but th- th- there's no question he's involved in confidence games, forgeries. His best uh, biographer is Joseph Canfield, who's written um, this book, uh, The Incredible Schofield in his book. Um, very detailed, very well footnoted. And he notes that um, these charges against Schofield were inexplicably dropped. He says, um, quote, the very sudden dropping of the criminal charges without proper adjudication suggests that Schofield's career was in the hands of someone who had clout, unquote. And, um, well, he's, uh, 
says that he converted to Christ around in 1879 in his law office in St. Louis, which couldn't quite be right since he was not a member of the bar in Missouri. Uh, although he may have had some kind of paralegal office, and he may have had something similar to that. Um, and he very rapidly became a pastor. By 1881, he's already a pastor, no seminary training or anything. He's already a pastor in St. Louis. And then in 1882, moves down to Dallas and becomes a uh, pastor of the first congregational church down there. And uh, it's been um, suggested, and I believe it's probably accurate, that a reason, the reason he moved down to Texas was that his background, uh, his, his criminal background and his abandonment of his family was too well known in the, uh, the uh, Missouri-Kansas region. Um, and it turns out there were some power brokers in his denomination down there in Dallas, including the Dealey family, which you've heard of Dealey Plaza, and they were um, the owners of the Dallas Morning News. And um, some people would say, well, so what if he was involved in confidence games and forgeries before his conversion to Christ? Because we're all sinners before he converted to Christ. And if the guy became born again, that's really a non-issue. But the problem is... And you can interrupt, interrupt me any time. No, you're good. That there was there were still issues after his conversion. After he was a pastor uh, in well, Dallas, I, I, you know, I, I will interrupt you because I want to uh, I want to uh, whet everybody's sure. appetite. Um, what we're eventually going to get to um, is that in this Schofield Reference Bible, uh, Schofield has all sorts of uh, commentary in there that uh, points the Old Testament prophe- prophecies to say that the that all, all these prophecies relate to today somehow 2000 years later after Christ fulfilled the prophecies in the old testament that now they actually relate to the Jews 2000 years later mm. are supposed to go right. to Palestine uh, uh and and retake the Palestine land uh in you know 20th century politics and it, it, so the the Schofield Bible is is uh is littered with all this uh politically motivated uh, Zionist uh, commentary, uh, and he and James is about to show you how this strange character Schofield uh, found himself in Zionist circles and became the tool used to uh, to build this incredible Christian Zionist movement in the 20th century. Uh, but he was but he was a shady character. Uh, Darby was a shady character. Uh, he got his ideas from Darby, and so we're we're right in the middle of the shady character story. But I'm wetting everybody's appetite. Continue on. Okay, thank you. Uh, yeah, I want to make it clear that Schofield is a guy who fathered his Bible fathered Christian Zionism, which has caused so much trouble um, uh, for the world. Um, but um, to get back to this, this is uh, where we're dealing with some objections people will raise. Well. The guy was converted, his, his criminal background and his background in confidence games doesn't matter. But even after his conversions, uh, uh, and after he became a pastor in Dallas, uh, 1883, the year after he became a uh, pastor in Dallas, his wife back in Kansas was granted a divorce on the grounds that he'd abandoned her um, and their two daughters. And here's what the Bible says, 1 Timothy 5, 8. Um, but if any provide not for his own, and especially for those of his own house, he is denied the faith and is worse than an infidel. And so by the Bible's own uh, criteria, he doesn't sound like he's very, very fit to be a pastor, but he's given a free pass on that particular one. But uh, and then he became married again to a wife named Hetty six months after the divorce. Um, but there are other issues as well. Truthfulness is another 
characteristic one expects from a genuinely converted believer. And there's a couple of, of things that Canfield uh, highlights. One is um, in his Who's Who biography, his description of his military service, uh, he described as follows, quote, Private Company H, 7th Tennessee Infantry, May 1861, to close of Civil War, served in Army of Northern Virginia under General Lee and awarded cross of honor for valor at Battle of Antietam. Now, there's some problems with this, which is that he did not serve to the close of the war. He begged out in 1862. So it wasn't 1861 to 65, it was 1861 to 62. He begged out of the service on the grounds that he was born in the North, and he was Michigan-born. And that's okay that he did that, but he does stretch the truth here in his biography, um, biographical entry in Who's Who. And serving in the, as far as serving under General Lee, Canfield notes, this is in the same sense that G.I.s in World War II were under General Eisenhower. He sort of implying that he was with Lee, but of course he, he never encountered him as far as we know. But the other thing, which I think is more, um, needs to be, uh, have attention called to it. He says it's awarded the cross of honor for valor at the Battle of Antietam. Well, actually, if you if you look at pictures of the Confederates, most you, you will not see them wearing medals and ribbons because it was a frill. The South could not afford to give out medals. He did not get any medal for valor at Antietam. He may well have fought there. He did fight in that battle. I wouldn't be surprised if he did fight valorously. But the the cross of honor, which he's talking about, was actually a decoration which the United Daughters of the Confederacy started giving out in the year 1900 to all dishonorably discharged Confederate veterans. So it had nothing to do with his valor in a battle. And so, again, he's certainly um, playing with the truth here in his description. But the worst part is his his claimed doctorate. Now, if you go into the Schofield Reference Bible, it says, by Reverend C.I. Schofield, D.D., Doctor of Divinity, and he started calling himself Dr. Schofield in 1892, which is a, uh, a good while before the Bible, uh, his reference Bible came out. Now, the problem is, where this doctorate came from, come from? He never went to university, never went to a seminary. Some people have said, well, he could have been given an honorary doctorate. But if so, in his Who's Who biography, he never cited the source of that degree and no university or seminary ever stepped forward and said, we were the one who gave him that honorary degree. Um, I will mention that it was important for him to have that degree uh, uh, claimed because the, for this book to come out, they had to say it was the work of a scholar. But there's no evidence whatsoever that he actually had this uh, doctorate. I should also mention, as far as honorary doctorates go, dispensationalism, as you've been pointing out, very unorthodox still in the late 19th century. It's very unlikely that any seminary would have given an honorary doctorate to a, a dispensational teacher. Still very unorthodox at that time. So his doctorate is in serious question. And again, this raises some, we're doing this in context, that there are some questions about his character in making claims that appear to be false about himself, his military service, and his education. Okay, so we've got a guy who was a shyster, a criminal gets born again, but he abandons his family. He also has a hard time telling the truth. So he's a, he's a man of suspect character, which helps uh, connect the dots when you get to the next part where you're going to talk about his special connections. Right. Um, that's exactly where we're going to go. We talked before that the Dealies were in his congregation down in Dallas. Now he moves up to New England, and in 1901... He became a member of the Lotos Club. Now, this is where it really gets weird. We were talking before about um, Andrew Carnegie. The Lotos Club 
was an exclusive club for the literary and financial elite of New York. Carnegie was a member of the atheist. Margaret Mead, the uh, proponent of the sex revolution, was a member. Mark Twain was a member. The Sulzbergers, who owned the New York Times, were members. How do you get an evangelical pastor in there? The membership dues alone were equal to one-fifth of his salary, and there were other fees for the club besides that. But he remained a member till his death in 1921. Now, it turns out that his membership was approved by the club's literary uh, committee head, and that was Samuel Untermeyer. Now, Untermeyer could credibly be called the number one Zionist in America in the 20th century. He was the president of Karen Hayasad, which is which was the chief financial the chief fundraiser for Zionism in Israel in the 20th century. He played a big role in uh, drafting the Federal Reserve Act, which we know was you know for Zionist interests and has been ripping off the people. Botching our dollar caused our dollar to lose 98% of its value since the Fed has been funded, and that's a whole other subject we can go into sometime. But he also was notorious in Washington circles for blackmailing Woodrow Wilson. He personally blackmailed Woodrow Wilson over an affair Wilson had had uh, while at Princeton. He blackmailed him while he was president, I should mention, and forced him to accept Louis Brandeis into the Supreme Court. That was the exchange. We'll give you the letters you wrote to this woman if you point <laughs> Brandeis to the Supreme Court. Um, and he also uh, helped, he was spear, the spearhead behind the Jewish declaration of war boycott against Germany in 1933, which inflamed tensions between the, the, uh, the Jewish world and, and uh, Germany and was, uh, helped lead us down the, the road towards World War II. So uh, I'm just summarizing these things to point out that is it a coincidence that Schofield's membership of the Lotus Club was approved by America's number one Zionist, and then Schofield produces a book which fathers the Zion, Christian Zionist movement. I don't think that's a coincidence, but this is the this is the kind of club where an evangelical pastor would be laughed away, but somehow he's in their ranks. So again, you can you can stop me anytime. I'm going to take it up to the next step, which is uh, when he goes to England in 1904. And uh, he went to England that year with his wife, Hetty, and uh, he met a, a gentleman there named Robert Scott. And he told Scott that, I don't know who could, I want to write this reference Bible. I don't know who could publish it, though. As it's what happened, Scott knew the head of Oxford University Press. Now, I'm going to quote to you from Schofield's official biography by Charles Trumbull. And this biography was published by Oxford University Press. So let's pick it up. He, uh, Scott introduces it to uh, Mr. Frowdy, the head of Oxford University Press, and I'm quoting from the biography now. Quote, Mr. Frowdy was interested. He said he would consult Mr. Armstrong, then head of the American branch of Oxford University Press. Mr. Armstrong was immediately enthusiastic at the suggestion that this new reference Bible be brought out by Oxford Press, and a preliminary understanding was quickly reached. Mr. Frowdy assured Dr. Schofield that if he finally decided to place the Bible with them, they could readily arrange a proper contract for the publication in the interest of each party. And so the publishing question was settled. Unquote. That's quick. I mean, you know, I, I struggled as a young writer in my teens with a lot of rejections slept, you know, thinking about back in the 60s. I can tell you right now that no publisher agrees to publish a, a manuscript they haven't even seen yet in advance, unless there's something going on behind the scenes. And the only exception would be if you're a, a best-selling author, if you are a Stephen King and you've had a string of bestsellers 
any publisher will say, you're, you're money in the bank, we can count on this. But Schofield had never written a book with the exception of rightly dividing the word of truth, which was self-described as a pamphlet. So Oxford University Press, which they uh, I've uh, read from uh, other biographies, was owned by Zionist Jews and was certainly into um, uh, socialism, uh, what they call Fabian socialism, and was not a Bible publisher. Why are they suddenly interested in a fundamentalist Bible? It just doesn't make sense. You can see the connections happening here. It, it the the uh, Oxford University Press would agree up front to publish the Bible makes no more sense than Schofield getting into the Lotus Club. You can see that the same forces. I should mention, by the way, that according to David Icke, uh, he's written an article saying that. Uh, when he got into the Lotus Club, he was introduced to major Jewish financiers such as Bernard Baruch um, and Jacob Schiff, which is believable because they were friends with Untermeyer. And suddenly Schofield has this money to travel to Europe. It cost a lot of money back in those days to take a trip to, to Europe uh, by steamship. And how does this pass to suddenly get all this money? So he's got connections. He's got handlers. He's got people who are moving him along. And there's one more thing I want to say about this, and this is very important. The date, 1904. Uh, in January of 1904, Theodor Herzl, who had been uh, headed up these Zionist congresses in Switzerland, went to Pope Pius X, and he asked the Pope if he would give the Zionists their blessings for a Jewish homeland in Palestine. And Pope Pius X rather politely told them, no, the Catholic Church cannot do that. We cannot, uh, you know, uh, Jews may go there, but we cannot endorse your taking over this land. Uh, that was January the 26th, 1904. We don't have the exact date of uh, Schofield's trip to England. We know it's early 1904. To connect the dots, it appears very likely that once the word uh, was received that the Catholic Church would not endorse the Zionist takeover of Palestine, it became essential to bring in the Protestants. And uh, this is, of course, where Schofield was being groomed. And this is, of course, what the Schofield Reference Bible did. It convinced the uh, remolded Protestant theology to fit the Rothschild agenda and say that the Zionist Jews had to, to take over Palestine. I don't think the timing is obviously not coincidental here. And alarm bells went out. Uh, the Zionists had to have the agreement of the Christian community uh, to take over Palestine. They could not have done it without Christian support. When the Catholics said no, it became essential to have the uh, Protestants on board. And thus we have Schofield traveling to England and meeting with the heads of Oxford University Press 1904. And then he produces a commentary of the entire Bible in a few months. Well, it's interesting. He went from England to Switzerland. And one of the questions I have to ask is, why go to Switzerland to write a reference Bible? It just doesn't seem like a very logical place. Um, it's been pointed out that John Calvin had a library there. But as far as I know, Schofield was not versed in foreign languages. I don't know that he could have made much use of it. And, you know, it just doesn't make a lot of sense to go to Switzerland, but Switzerland was where they were holding these Zionist conferences, congresses, although I don't believe they had one in 1904. But that might be the reason he went to Switzerland. I should also mention that it, Switzerland was regarded as a center of Freemasonry and, of course, of banking. We know all about the many um, secret bank accounts that are kept there. And uh, this probably has more to do uh, than John Calvin's library with Schofield going to Switzerland to spend nine months to work on his Bible. Then he goes back to America in 1905. And uh, 
goes back to England and some say to Switzerland again in 1906. And then in 1907, he officially signs his contract with Oxford University Press. And in January of 1909, uh, his Bible is first published. And um, so this, as you were just pointing out, uh, it wasn't months, but it was nonetheless a very short amount of time to produce a reference Bible. Uh, most men, it would take a lifetime of work to get a reference Bible up. But he manages to, to, to turn this thing out in a very short amount of time. Um, I'm looking for. So, I'm looking forward to you giving us a couple of specifics, examples of the uh, comments mm-hmm. on certain scriptures that yes. that make apparent the uh, blatant Zionist agenda in the Schofield Bible. Well, uh, there, there's a, there was a strategy to this. Um, you've already brought this out that the Bible notes were right on the pages. Now. Uh, Prior to this, uh, almost all Bible commentaries were separate from the Bible. You would have a Bible and you have a commentary separate from that. Now, the trick that the Schofield Bible was doing, I compare it to subliminal programming. You know, on a TV show, they, they, they say that they can flash a, a picture of a Coke so fast you won't even know there was uh, on the screen for one frame. Uh, it's, it's kind of akin to that in that people now were seeing Schofield's words on the pages of the Bible, and it started to give his comments... Uh, and the elevated authority, it's almost like they have the same authority as the Bible itself. They're right there next to the words of the Bible. When people, uh, the subliminal part is when people remember script, uh, scripture, they were quite likely to remember Schofield's comments along with it, or maybe in place of that particular verse. Another part of this strategy, and I should m- mention, was why Oxford University Press? Well, because they were such a big publishing house. They had major offices on both sides of the Atlantic. They produced millions of copies of this Bible. Now, we mentioned 1909 was the initial publication date, but the major edition, you cannot even find the 1909 version today. You probably have to pay a thousand bucks to get it. The major edition came out in 1917. This is the one you mentioned. Uh, this is one that they made millions of copies of. And so people are just looking for a Bible. They, they get the Schofield reference Bible with all those notes. So it was hyper-marketed, but the date is significant. 1917. Uh, the year that the revised edition was was uh, supermarketed and published was also the year of the Balfour Declaration. So what did this do? It gave, kind of gave the illusion that Schofield's Bible was somehow the hand of God was mysteriously moving, and God must indeed uh, have blessed the, the Balfour Declaration by which the the Jews would be given land in Palestine, because God's word is now coming out and saying the very same thing now. And it almost made it appear that the Balfour Declaration was a fulfillment of prophecy. So the timing, 1917, Balfour Declaration giving the Jews Palestine, 1917, this Bible uh, saying that God promised the land to, uh, to the Jews uh, in modern times. Uh, not, again, not a coincidence. Too many coincidences. You know, when you're a detective, too many coincidences. You say, okay, this is, this is according to a design. This is not just, you know, unfolding by chance. Um. So uh, let's go on to that, and let's talk about how he uh, twisted the Bible to accommodate Zionism. Um, one manner was this. Okay, we're going to quote now from the Bible. Genesis 12, 1 to 3. Uh, now the Lord said to unto Abram, Get thee out of thy country, and from thy kindred, and from thy father's house, and unto a land I will show thee, and I will make of thee a great nation, and I will bless thee, and make thy name great. And thou shalt be a blessing, and I will bless them that bless thee, and curse them that curse thee. All right, so what's been pointed out is that in the Hebrew, 
this is singular. He was saying, I will bless you, Abram, who became Abraham. But Schofield changed the singular to the plural and applied it to the modern Jews. And here's what he wrote in the Schofield uh, reference Bible. Uh, quote, and curse him that curseth thee, wonderfully fulfilled in the history of the dispersion, referring to the Jews, right? It has invariably fared ill with people who have persecuted the Jew, well with those who have protected him. The future will still more remarkably prove this principle, unquote, Sarah Schofield in the Sarah Schofield. But how could he know that this, the future is going to prove this principle unless he's got somebody dictating this to him? Now, um, uh, I should also mention that the Schofield Reference Bible was copyrighted not by Schofield but by Oxford University Press. So with each edition, they were able to amplify these remarks. It's interesting they published a revised edition in 1967, which is the year of the Six-Day War when the Zionists seized Jerusalem. And in that particular version, they added this to Schofield's preceding remarks. It said, quote, For a nation to commit the sin of anti-Semitism brings inevitable judgment. So now they're adding uh, anti-Semitism as a biblical sin, which the Bible never, never referred to that. Uh, now, go back to the uh, singular, singular plural thing. I want to hear that again. Okay. Uh, now the Lord had said to Abram, uh, get thee out of thy country and from thy kindred and from thy father's house. I mean, clearly those are singular. Okay. Unto a land I will show thee and I'll make of thee a great nation. I'll bless thee and make thy name great and thou shalt be a blessing. I will bless them that bless thee and curse them that curse thee. There's no reason to think this is still not singular. And uh, according to the references I've seen, this is singular in the Hebrew. But Schofield is making the thee to apply to the modern Jewish people. Bless them to bless thee. Anyone who curses the Jew is in big trouble now. And, and just to jump ahead. Regarding, them, regarding the Jew, just to clarify for our listeners, regarding the Jew is Abraham's seed. Yeah, exactly. I, that's what I was getting to, yes. Uh, his seed is singular, and the ultimate fulfillment of that is Jesus Christ. That's right. Um, now, another example of this uh, Christian Zionism being introduced into the Zionist uh, Schofield Reference Bible, Genesis fifteen eighteen says, in that, this gets into the seed. Um, in the same day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, Unto thy seed have I given this land from the river of Egypt unto the great river, the river Euphrates. Now, um, so this would be the, the promised land, and it's also the land that, uh, that was uh, called Greater Israel by Theodore Herzl. This is what they wanted. This is what they, they're after now. And you'll notice that this all Syria and Iraq here. Uh, these are lands we've been making war on. We're actually carving out uh, this greater Israel that the Rothschild dynasty has attached uh, so much uh, importance to. Um, so, uh, uh, by the way, I want to mention on the modern Israeli flag, just to tie in uh, the fact this is Herzl's plan. Now, uh, it's been pointed out that on the Israeli flag, the two blue lines are the Euphrates and the Nile. And uh, what I also find interesting is that um, the Star of David, which has no biblical basis, there's nothing in the Bible that you would uh, get that from. It's actually a satanic star, the six-pointed star, and it actually has um, six points, six triangles, and a six-sided hexagon in it, which does give us 666. Now, I'm not saying that's the 666 of Revelation, but I do find that an interesting coincidence that um, this symbol with so many sixes on it is between these uh, two um, uh, uh, 
representations of the, the Nile and the Euphrates on the Israeli flag, which is the uh, proxy state of the Rothschilds, who we know are Luciferian in their agenda and have been financing all these wars and are meaning to establish this ruler, this thousand-year ruler in uh, Jerusalem. I need about 50 footnotes for that those last three sentences, but we don't have time. But... Uh... <laughs> <laughs> the uh you don't do you have a source for the uh Euphrates Tigris uh stripes um not in front of me but I've certainly uh, seen many uh references to that do you have any uh uh off the top of your head any understanding of what is the actual source of the uh star of david design uh according to wikipedia uh and the article I referenced in truth is a lonely warrior they said that there was no the uh, it originated in the Middle Ages, but its exact origin was not known. It's called the Star of David, but it has no biblical basis. You know, if they wanted a, a biblical symbol, they could have had like a menorah, for example, something found uh, in the temple. But there is no biblical basis. For it originated in the 13th century, so it is not biblical. That is we interesting. At least say that uh, definitely. That is interesting that there's no biblical symbol that they choose. Yeah. Um, now another thing about this uh, is that. Um, Schofield made this uh, promise of land unconditional. Here's what he wrote. <clears throat> he said, uh, uh, in a, this, this Schofield's now words in his Schofield reference Bible, he says, uh, quote, for Abraham and his descendants, it is evident that the Abrahamic covenant made a great change. They became distinctly the heirs of promise. That covenant is wholly gracious and unconditional. The descendants of Abraham had to but abide in their own land to inherit every blessing, unquote. Well, we know that God's promises to the Israelites were very conditional. And this laid out, laid out uh, in Deuteronomy 28, you know, blessings for obedience and curses for disobedience. And uh, I, I give the example here. And if modern Christians really think that, uh, that this is an unconditional promise and that's why the Israelites are there now, they don't realize it's because the Rothschilds made the Belfort Declaration and bought up this land and the land was stolen from the Palestinians. They really think this is the hand of God here. I have a picture of the Tel Aviv Gay Parade, and uh, I use that as Tel Aviv has actually been named the world's most gay-friendly city by gays themselves. How biblical is that? You know, God did not even allow the ancient Israelites to enter the promised land under Moses because of the lack of faith. Now, if you go to modern Israel, their first um, prime minister was David Ben-Gurion. He was an atheist. You know, how are these people more faithful than the people who who rejected Jesus and who were uh, went into dispersion? Uh, there's nothing that's made them more faithful to deserve to move into this land. But uh, Schofield, unfortunately, made this promise unconditional, not faith-based. Uh, you just have it, it's yours forever type of deal. So um, Yeah, let me stop you there. Um, yeah. I, I think, uh, you know, there's... There's a lot of, I've got some very close friends, a lot of wonderful people that are Christian Zionists. Um, yeah, I, you know, Me too. I think, I think, yeah, I think they're, uh, they've got the wrong view, obviously. Um, and the historic church, uh, you know, for 1,800 years, pretty much had consolid, had consensus on this. And this is a, a brand new kind of thing that's come out the last 100 years or so. But but it's a hard, uh, it's a hard thing for people to give up. There's a, there's a romantic narrative that's been embraced, and you know it's mm-hmm. just tough to, to, it's tough to shed it. But one of the arguments that I think is most compelling is is what is the one you just shared, which is, you know, uh, people say, well, it, they're Jews, and and it's the promise to Abraham, so they they deserve the land. But we see in the scriptures time and again that these very same people who were related to Abraham. Uh, 
maybe not the very same people. We can talk about that later. But these right. very these very uh, these people in the scriptures that were descendants of Abraham were kicked out of the land by God on mm -hmm. s several different occasions, again and again, and of course it culminated with Jesus, right. uh, uh, basically. Uh, prophesying the destruction of Jerusalem which caused the scattering of Jews all across the world but but uh, uh, you do you do not deserve the land of Palestine just because you have uh, the gen the DNA of Abraham the Bible right. if, if there's any message the Bible's pretty clear about it's that one that if you're not following God if you're not obeying God then you do not get to be in the land you get kicked out of the land um, right and of course to, to obey God now is to follow Jesus Christ. Um, that's right. That's the how Israel you, of God. That's how you follow God yes. now, is to embrace Jesus Christ and follow Jesus Christ. The current uh, Jews uh, in Israel generally, uh, uh, apart from the moral filth that you uh, delineated, of course, we've got the same problem in the United States, um, mm -hmm. but uh, apart from the moral filth, uh, they, on paper, reject Jesus Christ. So to follow God is to follow Jesus Christ. To be obedient mm -hmm. is a requirement to be in the land if we were still under that same uh, uh, rubric. We're not now, but but uh, that that's, I think, one of the most compelling arguments. And, you know, so for people who are embracing Christian Zionism, you need to think through that. You know, it's, it's, a, it's really something to think through because the consequences of believing that the current people in Israel have a right to the land because of the promises to Abraham. That's really, it's, it's wrong. It, and uh, it's, it's wrong on, a, on several different counts, but real uh, people have been bulldozed off the land of Palestine mm -hmm. because of this false view. Uh, many of them Christians. Right. Many mm -hmm. of them Christians who've lived there for 2,000 years who probably have a, a more right to the land, uh, who, who are descended from Jews in the mm -hmm. first century, who converted to Jesus Christ. Exactly. Uh, so, uh, and so you've got that travesty, and, and that the travesty against the Palestinians has caused all sorts of turmoil across the Middle East. Arabs are, uh, are incensed about it. It's caused a lot of the conflict mm -hmm. we see in our world today. Um, there are just many reasons why this faulty thinking has, has caused a lot of problems. Um, so I just appeal to my friends, Christian brothers and sisters that I love, uh, to really think this one through, um, because it's a romantic narrative, but the real romantic narrative you need to embrace is that Jesus Christ came in the flesh uh, and fulfilled all the promises of the Old Testament. Mm -hmm. And in Jesus Christ now, in his flesh and in his body, Jew and Gentile have merged, and all the nations of the earth now are the new covenant and, and in the church of Jesus Christ. That's the, oh, romantic, it, that's the romantic narrative we need to be embracing. Uh, so well said, and it's so refreshing to speak to a Christian who understands these things, who understands these truths. Um, uh, another, uh, just to, to resume our narrative of how Schofield twisted the Bible for Zionism's sake, it's almost as if the Lord Rothschild was kind of dictating this to him, you know. Uh, but he made it appear that uh, the Bible prophecies this return. Um, and so here's what he wrote uh, in his Schofield reference Bible. He said, um, uh, the gift of land is, is modified by prophecies of three dispositions, three dispossessions and restorations. Two dispossessions and restorations have been accomplished. Israel is now in the third dispersion from which she will be restored at the return of the Lord. Now, he has vision this to come with the return of the Lord, but he's uh, saying that the Bible uh, prophecies a third restoration. Actually, if you look at the 
the verses he uses, he uses, for example, Isaiah. But Isaiah's prophecy of the restoration was talking about Nehemiah and uh, Ezra, that restoration. There were two restorations, one under Moses uh, when they uh, came back from Egypt um, to the promised land. And the other was under uh, Ezra and Nehemiah um, coming back to rebuild uh, the city. But nowhere does the uh, the Bible prophecy a third restoration, and he really had to twist the scriptures uh, and find uh, you know out of context Old Testament uh, scriptures. And, and, and to... does not Jesus in his prophecy about the destruction of the temple? He he says that it'll never be built again, doesn't he? Well, he said your kingdom has left you desolate, and he he, he prophesied the destruction of the temple, which really occurred in seventy A.D. But nowhere did Jesus say it's you know, oh, and after that it's going to be built again. Right. Uh, no, he prophesied its destruction, and of course it was no longer necessary. He said he was the temple. Um, his body was the temple. Um, so all of this needs to be recognized if if we are Christians. Um, this idea of reverting to some sort of Jewish interpretation. In fact, um, you know, a lot of the Christian publishing houses have come under uh, Zionist control. And I just got this last week. Um, I printed this out on a laser printer. It's hard to read. It's dark. but It's the Complete Jewish Study Bible. And um, it just came out. And it says, introducing a one-of-a-kind Bible that reconnects readers with the Jewishness of God's Word. Uh, you can really see this. I'm going to talk later about this. How it happened in my own church being Judaized. But you just to see this Judaiz, Judaization of the Christian church taking place. And Schofield is really the beginning. Of the, none of this would have been tolerated uh, 150 years ago in American churches. I'm going to bring on another point. Yeah, that, oh, but that, you go that, ahead. I, let me give you yeah. two points on that. One is, um, you know, people forget that when you read the scriptures, all throughout the scriptures, one of the major huge controversies was the uh what they called the judaizers were, who were trying yes. to con continue on the jewish religion and uh, it almost it almost destroyed christianity but uh, commented on that he yeah. called them judaizers yeah, yeah. so they had to have the, they had to have the big council in acts acts 15 where they finally mm -hmm. said no you know no more circumcision no more all these old testament mm -hmm. laws no more practicing the jewish faith we're going to uh uh, you know, they had a couple of things: don't do sexual immorality and don't drink blood. But right, but, you know, mm -hmm. just you, you, this this is over with. It's it's over. It's done, and uh, uh, and it, it it's a it's a great heresy to continue to to practice uh, Judaism. So, uh, but that's what's happening now with Christians. They they've kind of forgotten all that. Now, the second thing I'd like to mention about that is um, one of the reasons that a lot of evangelical Christians and others are moving in this direction is because they're so uh, culturally uh, starving. Uh, there's such a void. Now, as you know, I'm a part of the historic Christian church, which was I mean, going on for a couple thousand years, and we have we have feasts and fasts, and we have a church calendar, and we do all these cool things. Uh, we got 12 major feasts uh, of the church during the year, and we do all sorts of interesting um rituals and all sorts of cool stuff that's all about Christ and it's all part of the Christian tradition but you know one of the but evangelicals don't do that anymore they just think hey we just we don't you know we're not we're not into that physical stuff anymore it's just all spiritual it's some mm -hmm. kind of some kind of platonic platonic gnostic heresy but but uh so they're attracted to like let's go be jewish and let's go uh let's go do huh. let's let's build a little a, a little hut with some leaves and live in it for a day, and you know, let's let's do a saker, and let's get some 
some some weird spices and a couple other things and let you know and 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 you know they're they're looking they're looking for some ritual they're looking for something that's part of your life you know but if you're if you were a historic christian you know you would uh you do theophany every year where you'd go out to a river and you'd uh throw the cross in the river and people dive in and come and bring it back and you during the uh you know during pascha you know, you process around the church with the cross and big crowds and you have parades and you, uh, 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 several times during the year, you'll bring some loaves into the church and you'll put some oil on it and uh, they'll anoint your head with some oil and you eat, you know, there's just, there's all this stuff that goes on. Uh, and we have the ritual, we have the cool stuff, we have the feasts, we've got the, uh, all the things that, that, uh, a human being who's made with a body yearns for. Uh, and so evangelical Christianity doesn't have that. And so they're starving. And so they, they reach out for strange things like Judaism. Uh, that is a great point. And also uh, those feasts you're mentioning, carrying the cross in public also brings the cross of Christ uh, into the public view and into the public domain instead of just being uh, contained uh, within uh, the church. Do you have uh, any thoughts on how, they were able to get the Schofield Bible to be so pervasive. Did they have a cheap price on it, or was it just that Oxford and its minions had such a huge marketing arm that it just was able to pull that off? Well, uh, in terms of its acceptability, I think it was marketing. Uh, I think part of it was that they, it was beautifully produced. I mean, the print was beautiful. They had the cloth and leather-bound editions, so this appeared to be God-honoring. And again, the accessibility of the notes, the fact that you didn't have to go back and forth between a commentary made it uh, user-friendly, as it were. But as far as the price, whether they sub subsidize it or not, I don't know, but that would not surprise me. Me I would either, because, that. you know, these churches, you know, they're just regular old churches. They didn't have tons of money or big budgets, huh? and they all had them. Okay. I expect that the... There's with the Rothschild fortune, I, I would have to say that they would have subsidized the There's got to be an answer to that. To make, yeah. So I would say, I would say as a guess, yes, as a edu very educated guess. Um, I want to make one more uh, comment about uh, Schofield's uh, changing the, um, the meaning of the Bible. Uh, one of the th things about the dispensationalism is that if a prophecy has not been fulfilled, uh, in the Bible, then it must be fulfilled in the future. Uh, but the way he twisted this was um, uh, the book of Joshua. This has been like, the book of Joshua is supposed to be like, the big reason they have the right to go in and take away this land for the Palestinians. And uh, here's what Schofield wrote. Um, he said, uh, it is important to see that the nation, meaning Israel, has never, has never as yet taken the land under the unconditional Abrahamic covenant, nor has it ever possessed the whole land. Um, Unquote. And, and that's, you know, referring to the fact that not all the people, the, not all the Canaanites were wiped out. But um, here's the thing. Uh, first of all, why is it important? But uh, the main thing is that the Bible doesn't agree with him. Here's what it says in Joshua chapter 21. It says, so the Lord gave Israel all the land he had sworn to give to their ancestors, and they took possession of it and settled there. Not one of the Lord's good promises to Israel failed. Everyone was fulfilled. And also, if you go up to Kings... If we're talking about uh, greater Israel, we had that uh, map of uh, greater Israel and the Israeli flag. Kings 4.21 says, And Solomon ruled over all the kingdoms from the Euphrates River to the land of the Philistines as far as the border of Egypt. 
These countries brought tribute and were Solomon's subjects all his life. So they did rule that land for the Nile to the Euphrates. It was fulfilled. And this idea that jo- the book of Joshua somehow overrides the Ten Commandments and that we now have to let the Israelites go in there and steal this land. But you were mentioning another thing, which uh, which is important, which is that um, there's been a lot of research indicating that the people who call themselves Jews or Ashkenazi Jews are not actually the seed of Abraham, physically, DNA-wise. There was a book that came out, uh, I believe it was 1976, by a Jewish author, Arthur Kessler, uh, called The 13th Tribe. And he made a historical case that um, most of the people who call themselves Jews today are actually from the tribe of the Khazars. Now, the Khazarian kingdom converted as a state religion, converted to Judaism in the 8th century, and that's that's in Wikipedia. People can just look it up. And they became, they eventually moved um, uh, westward and became the Yiddish-speaking people of uh, Germany and uh, uh, Poland, by and large. Um, there's also been DNA evidence to support this. Not all the DNA evidence is, 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 uh, is absolute, but I even have a, ch- uh, a, uh, a, a passage in my book, Truth of the Lonely Warrior, uh, uh, from a New York Times article affirming the DNA evidence traces them to uh, a Turkic kingdom, a Turkey, area of Turkey and not the Middle East, uh, and suggests that they did come from Khazaria. So uh, if, in fact, they are not genetically the seed of Abraham, then they have no... No claim to the land, even if you accept uh, uh, Schofield's interpretation of those verses. So uh, there's whole kinds of reasons we should not be endorsing this. Yeah, in, a, that, that, that would be a huge irony. Now, let, let me ask you something. Um, the Sephardic Jews. Uh, I don't know much about Sephardic Jews, um, but tell me what you know about them. Uh, and you you made a mention in your article, I think, that, uh, that they're – they're sort of the redheaded stepchild, or they don't get treated the right the right way, or something. What, what's uh, going on I think there? I was actually quoting from an article by uh, Jack Bernstein, who was uh, a I believe he was Sephardic, and he talked about the racism of the Ashkenazi Jews towards the Sephardic Jews, and it has been suggested because the Sephardic Jews are lo- are darker skinned and look more like Arabs that they probably are more likely related to um, Abraham than the Ashkenazi Jews would be. Um, but they're considered a, a minority group um, by the Ashkenazi Jews, or at least uh, many of them in, in Israel today. Um, but uh, he, he calls it a Marxist uh, racist state. And, you know, there are apartheid rules and, you know, you have to renounce Christianity. If you want, you have to be Jewish to, to, to move there, uh, become a citizen. And uh, we would consider that racism. We held that view in America today. Um, you know, they don't let any of these refugees come in while uh, encouraging us to do the same, um, creating chaos in Europe now and potential chaos for America in the future. But there's been a whole uh, legacy of damage uh, that's been caused. Uh, one, of course, is the ethnic cleansing of the Palestinians. Um, I don't uh, have it here, but there was a movie made in 1950 that was not aired in theaters called Sands of Sorrow, but it's on YouTube. And it shows the plight of these hundreds of thousands of Palestinians who removed from their homes, uh, living in tents. And uh, just a quote from the uh, website, uh, if Americans knew, uh, quote, Zionist forces committed 30, we're talking about 1948, Zionist forces committed 33 massacres and destroyed 531 Palestinian towns. Author Norman Finkelstein, who's himself Jewish, uh, states 
I quote, according to the former director of the Israeli Army Archives, in almost every village occupied by us during the war, acts were committed which are defined as war crimes such as murders, massacres, and rapes. Yuri Milstein, the authoritative Israeli military historian of the 1948 war, goes one step further, maintaining that every skirmish ended in a massacre of Arabs. This is not Christianity. This is not forgiving your enemy. This is not love. Okay. And the other thing is um, we're talking uh, off air about the Nephilim. Another thing that people need to understand about the book of Joshua and uh your guest uh, the other day, Jay Dyer, was talking about this, and I was so, I'm so on board with it because uh, I have an article called "Making Sense of the Supernatural." We talk about this, and the, when the Israelites came up under Moses, the people they found in Canaan were giants. That's why they were afraid to go in. These were transhumanized people. If you know anything, as you do, about the Book of Enoch in Genesis six, you know there were the giants in the land that were a result of intermarriage against God's will uh, of uh, angels. And humans. That's where the giants came from. That's where the demonic spirits come. The, this, the demonic spirits that roam the earth are the spirits of these Nephilim or giants. And there were giants in the land. These were satanic people sacrificing their children on altars to Satan. That's who God was wiping out, just as he wiped them out with the flood. Th- those are not the people in Palestine today. They are not giants. They aren't transhumanized, and they aren't worshippers of Satan. So the book of Joshua has no application here, none whatsoever. This is completely unjustified, and it really... I just I just can't stomach seeing from the pulpit of God people who are endorsing this takeover, which is so criminal. And of course, most of the, the people who are doing it from the pulpit are not aware of the extent of the atrocities because it's been suppressed by these Zionist-controlled media. They don't realize the, the extent of the bloodshed. Okay. Thanks. Well, uh, just that uh, some of the other legacies of this, besides the, the uh, horrific uh, destruction of the Palestinian people— uh, we created a, a base for false flag terrorism. I won't uh, go into detail here, but I hyperlink from my article to uh, the uh, all the terrorist acts, uh, many of the terrorist acts of Israel, such as the King David Hotel bombing of 1946, the Levon affair of 1954, where they were going to bomb U.S. facilities in Egypt, the, the terrible attack on the USS Liberty, uh, a, uh, an unarmed ship, except for some Philly... 50 caliber machine guns in 1967 uh, killed and wounded uh, 200 Americans. Uh, a week long investigation. Israel's let off the hook. They were trying to bring us into the war on their side, the six day war in 1967 on their side, and blame the sinking of the ship on Egypt. It didn't work out because the crew fought them off and got off communications to the Sixth Fleet, which sent uh, 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 fighters to their rescue. Uh, then you could go on to the bombing of uh, Libya in 1986. That is based on a Mossad false flag. This is a Mossad operation, not a Libyan operation. And this is a book called By Way of Deception by Viktor Ostrovsky, a former officer in the Mossad who details how Israel tricked Reagan into bombing uh, uh, Libya in uh, 1986 for a terrorist act that Libya had not committed. And finally, of course, 9-11. And you can go on forever about the Israeli connections to that. Everything from the dancing Israelis who were celebrating that day to Michael Chertoff, a dual U.S.-Israeli citizen being put in charge of the 9-11 investigation, to Larry Silverstein, friend of many Israeli uh, prime ministers, getting a $5 billion uh, insurance payout on the destruction of the World Trade Center after he bought it less than two months before, or Daniel Lewin, ex-Israeli commando, sitting right behind Mohammed Atta on Flight 11. 
you just, it's just the Israeli connections go on forever and ever. And we won't, that's something that uh, you can connect to from this article uh, for more detail. But we've brought terror on the world. And there would never have been 9-11 or all these Middle East wars right now, Afghanistan, Iraq, Libya, Syria. We're doing this on behalf of uh, the Rothschild uh, powers and their proxy state. And of let, me, let me let me throw a little, another one of our famous caveats in there. Um, no caveats. No yeah. caveats. <laughs> yeah, well, you're, well, uh, you know, we you're, probably do need caveats. I've said a lot. Yeah, I'm sure we need some caveats after that. Oh, we we'll probably need about 500 caveats for this show. That's okay. <laughs> um, the uh, uh, Next time, more caveats. <laughs> you, you, you're, you're basically making a case for there's bad fruit that's come out of the original fruit of allowing uh, land to be stolen from a people group who lived on the land. Um, but what, what we're not saying is that Jews as a race are any more evil than anybody else. We're just saying that everybody is equal under the law, and that, and that includes Israelis and Jews. We all are equal under the law, and we all have to obey the law, and we're all accountable to the law. And because you're a Jew, you don't have the right to break the law, which is doing a false flag or stealing somebody's land. And you don't have the right to do it as an American either. And you don't have the right to do it as a Frenchman either. Uh, but some, somehow, uh, because of bad theology, at least evangelicals tend to look the other way when it comes to mm -hmm. Jews and Israelis. When they're right. when they're doing criminal things, and that's what we're saying. It's not racist. It's just everyone needs to be equal under the law, including Israelis and Jews. Right, and that's why I, I did give that caveat at the outset about the fact that I'm half Jewish and that uh, we are not talking about all Jews. We are talking about certainly a political state that has had a specific agenda and has undertaken some very evil actions against the West in order to advance that agenda. There's a, there's a very light, large slice of Jews who uh, oppose Zionism. Correct. A very large slice of... The Turicarta, a great example. Yeah. Or, uh, many liberal Orthodox Liberal and Jews, Orthodox yeah. across yes. the board. Right. Uh, and, uh, you know, I, I'm on Twitter and I get uh, tweets all the time of pictures of Jews marching against uh, the occupation of, uh, of uh, Palestine. There are many Jews throughout the world who oppose this violence. Uh, so, again, we are in no way condemning any people as a race or uh, uh, as a whole. Absolutely uh, not. Hebrews 8.13. Yeah. Okay. Uh, by calling this covenant new, uh, God made the first one obsolete. And what is obsolete and outdated will soon disappear. So, uh, the old covenant is obsolete. Um, the... the uh, there is no second path to God besides Christianity. Uh, Jesus Christ is the path to God. Mm -hmm. The kingdom of God is Jesus Christ. To follow God is to follow Jesus Christ. And there is no second track for Jews. That, that, uh, that, that uh, covenant is old and obsolete. That's right. And um, uh A lot of Christians have uh, bought into the idea, and this is another thing that uh, is advanced by Christian Zionism, that um, this idea of uh, Judeo-Christianity. Um, and uh, what a lot of uh, Christians fail to realize is that uh, the 
Jew of today, a lot of Christians have the idea that the Jew of today follows the Tanakh or the old, we would call the Old Testament. What they don't realize is that the organized Jewry today actually regards the Talmud as senior to the Tanakh. This is the oral, what Jesus called the oral law, the, the, uh, the, the, the laws made by the Pharisees, which they were using to override the, the laws of God that were found in the Tanakh. Now, the, those, that oral tradition of the Pharisees over centuries was developed and evolved and was written down and became the Talmud. And what most Christians don't realize is that it's utterly hostile to Christianity. Um, the Talmud says, uh, for example, that Jesus is in hell uh, boiling in feces. Um, Jesus' mother, uh, Mary, was a whore. That's in the Babylonian Talmud. Gentiles are donkeys. Um, all Gentile children are animals. Um, I'm indebted to Michael Hoffman in his book, Judaism, Strange Gods, for uh, bringing the details of the Talmud out. That's a book I strongly recommend, and it's uh, among the recommended works at now, the end I, of my article. I've come across uh, the stuff you're reading uh, on several different places, and mm -hmm. uh, and I have no doubt that's what's in the uh, Talmud. Um, but I do have this uh, counter question, um, and mm -hmm. you, I don't know if you know enough about Judaism to know, but you know, like in Christianity, you could pick a few things out of the Old Testament, and you could do some things, and you could caricature Christianity to look fairly uh, extreme and nutty. Uh, but, uh, of course, it's interpreted by the new. But is there any sense in which those things that you're citing are some obscure or not quite interpreted the right way? Or is, the, or is there no way for them to, to slither around it? Um. Well, they're, they're certainly there, and I think that uh, I would have to say that Michael Hoffman gives a plethora of examples of that hostility. And Brother Nathaniel himself is Jewish, talks about how a, a rabbi would typically spit uh, when walking past the church. There's definitely uh, a great deal of hostility, the point being that, uh, number one, the, the Jews do regard themselves uh as being more under the Talmud than under the Torah uh, or under the uh, the old law. Yeah, no, I think uh, I think you're right. That's the larger point. There are some very extreme things, and there's even worse stuff in your that's in your list that we could cite because I've come across it. But the larger point, you're exactly right, is that is that your average good-hearted American evangelical Christian who uh, has been influenced by the Schofield Bible, they think that uh, today's Jews uh, follow the Old Testament. They right. don't, they don't follow the Old Testament. They follow the the Talmud, which interprets uh, portions of the Old Testament and also brings in other types of things. And it's a it's really a whole new set of rules and regulations. And it's it's not the Bible. It's the very thing that Jesus Christ condemned. Yes. And you know there was nobody the who Jesus expressed a temperament more towards than the Pharisees, and is over these oral traditions. And that's really what we're talking about when we talk about the Talmud. And there's certainly, um, again, we're not saying that all Jews feel this way. There's no generalization, but uh, there are mo many modern statements. For example, Rabbi Cook, the elder, first Ashkenazi chief rabbi of, of British Palestine, said this, quote, the difference between a Jewish soul and the soul of non-Jews, all of them in different levels, is greater and deeper than the difference between a human soul and the souls of cattle. Um, the Israeli uh, rabbi Yaakov Peren said, 1994, one million Arabs are not worth a Jewish fingernail. Now, if uh, an American said, said that about a person of a different race, you can imagine the reaction. 
Um, I'll get just one more. This is from uh, Rabbi Sadia Grama, if I'm pronouncing that right, in his 2003 book, Jewish Superiority and the Question of Exile. Quote, the Jew by his source in his very essence is entirely good. The goy, meaning Gentiles, by his source in his very essence is a completely evil. This is not uh, simply a matter of religious distinction, but rather of two completely different species, unquote. So we see this continued. And uh, one thing that Brother Nathaniel points out, again, himself uh, raised Jewish, is that the reason that Jews have been expelled more than 100 times from different countries over the centuries is not because of inherent anti-Semitism in all these countries. It was because of the behavior and the inherent uh, racism of uh, Talmudic Jews. Again, we're not saying that all Jews are like that. Uh, many, many are not. Many, many are not. But this is the reason why uh, they were expelled from countries was because of their behavior, uh, not some inherent and, you know, anti... There's a reason why we have different religions. Um, mm-hmm. As an analogy, uh, let's talk about Islam. You know, there's a lot of, <clears throat> there's a lot of uh, controversy that goes back and forth. Is Islam a... Uh, religion of peace, uh, a, a peace or a religion, uh, religion of uh, violence and that sort of thing. And, and there's there's a lot of ways to slice that apple. Um, but uh, because I actually believe that most uh, Muslims are moderate, uh, but but some of them aren't. <laughs> I also believe that uh, uh, criminal uh, uh, globalists uh, obviously try to incite that thing and, and make it worse mm-hmm. than it is. But but here's the deal um, on paper. Uh, Muslims uh, have a religion that uh, espouses crusading, military crusading to take over the world. That's what their scriptures say. Now, most of the followers of Muhammad don't really buy into it. They got better things to do, and they don't really want to be that way. But if you're going to be a sold-out Muslim, you're going to be a military crusader. Now, on paper, Christianity which is fulfilled and interpreted in the New Testament and the teachings of Christ, on paper, Christianity is a religion of peace. And if you're going to be a radical follower of Jesus Christ, you're going to be a peaceful person who strives for peace and turns the other mm-hmm. cheek. You know, um, are there militant, hostile, violent, crusading Christians? Yes, but they're not being true to their religion. Uh, Judaism on paper, is not the religion of the Old Testament. Mm-hmm. Judaism, on paper, is the oral traditions compiled into the Talmud, which have many uh, and terrible teachings. <laughs> um, and, uh, and so there's a reason we have at least three major religions, and we've got a few more, because their primary documents teach a certain thing and a certain way of life. And so it's important. Yes, there are many Jews who don't believe the terrible teachings of the Talmud, they don't really even some of them know what they are. They probably would be Jews they, by name if they did. But you know, they you, you just don't know if you don't know. But if you're going to follow uh, your religion to its ultimate conclusions as a Jew, it's going to go in a in a in a bad direction. Mm-hmm. Doesn't mean all Jews are that way. That's right. Uh, I do know that um, the uh, brutality of the Israeli defense force. Uh, towards the Palestinians is partly from being inculcated with these uh, attitudes of the Talmud that non-Jews are animals and they treat them as animals. And so I do believe that is very much part and parcel of the violence um, in the apartheid state that we see in Israel today. Um, 
I do believe that it's, it's part of that, no question that it's part of that teaching. Um, so that is evil. Um, again, we're not trying to generalize about any people, but I have no, uh, there's no question in my mind that the state of Israel as a creation of the, um, the Rothschilds, if you want to see an interesting article, I didn't reference in that one, but it, I do in my book, Truth is the Lonely Warrior, go to a uh, site uh, by Jerry Golden. He's a Messianic Jew. It's called The Roots of Evil in Jerusalem. And he shows the Israeli Supreme Court where uh, when you walk through the building, you trample on the cross of Christ and they have a Masonic pyramid on the on the um, the, the roof. And you, uh, as you walk through, you'll see a picture of the Rothschilds uh, seated around with the architects of the building. I mean, there is a, a whole Luciferian um, backdrop to this new world order, uh, utterly anti-Christian. And uh, again, these are the people, very people that who Jesus Christ condemned. So um, I want to make total allowances for all Jews. Um, again, I'm half Jewish myself for, for who oppose this. And we're all uh, equal in the sight of God. Let's, uh, uh, but at the same time, I don't want to downplay the Luciferian nature of what I consider a criminal state, counter uh, a, a satanic state counterfeiting in order to fool the Christian world as somehow the rebirth of a biblical, godly Israel. Israel. Yeah, I mean, I, I agree with you. Uh, we we have all the caveats, but then but then you got to get back to the to the truth, uh, you know. And one of the great verses uh, that just kind of lays it out there is in first john that says he who has he who has the son has life and he who does not have the son does not have life and the wrath of god abides on him forever so let's you know we we need to be clear that uh, truth and love and and uh and the angels are with jesus christ and if you separate yourself from Jesus Christ, you're not on the side of truth, and you're not on the side of the angels. You're on the side of the demons, mm -hmm. um, and uh, it's a, it's a fearful thing. Um, and so, uh, it would not be surprising that uh, uh, if you are devoting yourself to a religion that, on paper, rejects Jesus Christ, whether it's Judaism or Islam or others that there's going to be bad things and demonic things and other things that follow that trail. Um, and certainly you find that uh, if you start to lift up the rocks that deal with is the Israeli state and Israeli history and the Luciferianism that you're talking about that seems to be uh, uh, found pretty heavily in those circles. They, they, they follow a different god. They do. And uh, if you want a, a good example of how they would uh, treat America if they had the ability to do so, you take a look at the Bolshevik Revolution, which was funded by the Rothschilds, funded by Jacob Schiff at Kuhn Loeb, who met with Trotsky, gave him $20 million in gold. And you look at what they did to the Orthodox Church there, whereas I understand it, they, uh, they destroyed 3,000 churches and slew 60,000 priests, and they turned the Bible into toilet paper. A a millions of people dying, a complete disregard for human life. And by the way, they made anti-Semitism the death penalty there. Bolshevism and Talmudism were very uh, were joined at the hip, uh, very much part of the same thing. And I honestly think that the only reason that the powers that be right now tolerate the Christian church in America is because of this Christian Zionism supporting the Israeli agenda. We've taken out one of 
enemy after another. We've taken out uh, Afghanistan and Iraq and Libya and now taken down Syria and we've destabilized Egypt. The only enemy they've got left in the region is Iran. And yet they've asked for an increase in defense spending, which they've given them. We're giving more money to Israel than all of Africa. We've, we've just pledged to give them $38 billion in military aid. They're already getting $3 billion a year. What do they need it for? We've, we've lost, we've spent trillions of dollars taking out their enemies. I believe that if we took out Iran, they would have no use for America any longer. They're just waiting for that day. Um, but understand, we're not really talking ultimately about a people, and it's not my intention in the least to direct hatred towards Jewish people at all. Again, I'm, I'm half Jewish myself. I, probably about the fifth time I've said that. But ultimately, this is a Luciferian, a spiritual warfare at its height. But close to that height has been the Talmudic Jews, along with their Freemasonic allies in the Gentile world. If you want to look at the, the pyramid at the back of the dollar bill, uh, many say that that is Satan's eye at the top of that Freemasonic pyramid. Uh, I'd have to say the power structure at the top is the Talmudic Rothschild dynasty, and below them, their skull and bones that mend their, their uh, Freemas 33rd degree illuminated palladium right uh, Albert Pike Freemasons beneath that. Um, but so we're ultimately, we're talking about a Luciferian agenda, an agenda to place the Antichrist on the throne, and perhaps we should move on to some discussion of the temple, but let me throw it back to you. Yeah, uh, but speaking of the temple, uh, are you familiar with the, uh, uh, I think in the 4th century... Uh, there was an attempt to rebuild the temple back then. I didn't know that. Yes. Is that part of that Kiliasm? Uh No. Well, uh, well, I, I don't think it's. It, it might be related, but, but basically, uh, the church, uh, the church was uh, no longer persecuted. Constantine, you know, m uh, made Christianity the religion of the state, and uh, but then just a couple days, a couple decades later, things uh, got out of control, and Julian the Apostate became emperor, and. Uh, and he was a Jew, and um, and he conspired to uh, rebuild the temple in Jerusalem. Hmm. And so there was a big, massive effort to go rebuild the temple. And uh, as they were trying to rebuild the temple, had a bunch of workers out there and stuff. A, a bunch of big, huge balls of fire came out from from the underneath the earth and destroyed the uh, construction project, killed hundreds of people, and. Uh, uh, and it uh, dismantled the whole effort. Uh, and then, of course, Julian got deposed uh, with a Christian emperor, and so there. Uh, I think there was one more attempt, uh, maybe in the fifth century. Uh, e. Michael Jones talks about this in his mm -hmm. book, um, and uh, but it, it's it's on the internet. I, I looked at it today, and uh, Saint John Chrysostom, one of the great church fathers, you know, confirms the event and talks about the fire coming out from under the earth and killing a bunch of people. But uh, this isn't the first time that there's been an attempt to uh, bring Jews back into Palestine and rebuild the temple. Well, you might want to mention those balls of fire to the con Christian congregations that are giving out big donations for the rebuilding of the temple. I have spoken to a, a Christian missionary to Israel who uh, affirmed to me they have everything ready for the temple. They have all the instruments. Everything's ready to go. And they're talking about uh, destroying the mosque at the temple, uh, temple Mount in order to rebuild Solomon's temple. Um, you know, I was uh, uh, in a church where the pastor was teaching from the book of Ezekiel. Um, and he was saying that because this is the, the Schofield uh, 
uh, idea that if it hasn't been fulfilled, it lies in the future. Since that Ezekiel temple was not built, it has to be built in the future. We're saying that Jesus is going to reign from that temple. And uh, um, I was looking at it, and I, I was looking at the book of Ezekiel. It says, but it says, also one sheep is to be taken from every flock of 200 from the well-watered pastures of Israel. They'll be used for the grain offerings, burnt offerings, and fellowship offerings to make atonement for the people. And... Uh, well, I, what about the book of Hebrews? It says that we're under a better covenant. It says that uh, unlike the other high priest, he, meaning Jesus, does not need to offer sacrifices every day, first for his own sins and then for the sins of the people. He sacrificed for the sins once for all. So, um, and also we were talking before about uh, the Judaizing. Um, the book of Ezekiel says, this is what the sovereign Lord says, no foreigner uncircumcised in heart and flesh is to enter my sanctuary, not even the foreigners who live among the Israelites. So would Jesus require us to be circumcised again? I mean, you were, you were commenting on this. I mean, Paul said in Galatians 5, 2 to 4, says, mark my words, I, Paul, tell you that if you allow yourselves to be circumcised, Christ will be of no value to you at all. Again, I declare that every man who lets himself be circumcised is obligated to obey the whole law. Clearly, we're not under the old covenant, under these old traditions, yet this uh, particular Bible teacher was saying that we're going to rebuild the temple, we're going to go back to the Jewish sacrifices again. And I said, how could you miss the clear teaching of the, the, uh, the New Testament, uh, which goes totally against this? And as far as Jesus uh, being in the temple... Uh, you know, we would talk about this. He, he said he, he prophesied the destruction of the temple, not just building up. And he said this about his second coming. He says, uh, this is Matthew 24, 26 to 27. He says, so if anyone tells you there he is out in the desert, do not go out. Or here he is in the inner rooms, do not believe it. Um, so what I, I really feel is happening is that by teaching Christians that Jesus is going to reign from the temple for a thousand years in this uh, when the current dispensational age comes to a close, Christians are being set up to actually worship the beast. I believe that's what they're being set up for because the Bible tells us who will rule from the temple. Uh, Paul said, uh, speaking of the uh, the day of the Lord, he said, uh, this is uh, 2 Thessalonians 2, 3 to 4. He said, don't let anyone deceive you in any way for that day will not come until the rebellion occurs and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the man doomed to destruction. He will oppose and exalt himself over everything that is called God or is worshipped so that he sets himself up in God's temple, proclaiming himself to be God. And now maybe Jesus is speaking of 70 AD here, but Jesus said that um, we would see uh, these things happening when you see standing in the holy temple, the abomination that causes desolation spoken of through the prophet Daniel. I don't know what your take on that is, but I do feel that uh, we're setting ourselves up for an era where this um, proclaimed thousand-year reign uh, of a Messiah would occur. Uh, I believe that uh, we're setting ourselves up to take the mark of the beast and worship someone who uh, Paul warned us in 2 Thessalonians would be the man of lawlessness, the beast. Uh when did Jesus ever proclaim that he would be a godly king? And he said, my kingdom is not of this world. And you, as you know, they tried to make him a king and refused to let them do it. So it's entirely contrary to his word and to his nature to want to be an earthly king. Yeah, I mean, uh, that's interesting. Well, I mean, I, I think uh, at the restoration of all things, I mean, I wouldn't be surprised if he uh, rules as a king, but it would be the end of all things. Um, I think... Uh, <clears throat> In fairness, 
I don't know about in fairness, but some of the Christian, not Christian Zionists, but some of the Christians who are obsessed with the Antichrist and the and the beast and the rebuilding of the temple, uh, their motivation, I guess, in part is that they're hoping to see all this stuff happen because they feel like that means the Lord will come mm. back soon. Mm. Right. But, Good question. But that's uh, that's kind of a sick way to view the world. Um, let's talk about that for a minute. First of all. As uh, as one teacher I once heard once heard said that the, what 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 pe- what Christians do is they say we're going to fly and they're going to fry so let's just root for the Antichrist and watch TV. Mm-hmm. Well, there's there's something sick about that about just wanting to um, uh, see something like that happen. Um, number two, we're supposed to be uh, spending our time uh, building the kingdom of God, mm-hmm. uh, advancing the kingdom, loving Christ, loving our neighbor. And we're not supposed to be spending our time uh, rooting for the evil one. Uh, uh, thirdly, and this is probably the most important of all the points, you know, Jesus himself said, no one knows the day or the hour. Mm-hmm. And, right. uh, you know, we do have some scriptures that we're supposed to, you know, look at the seasons and, and you know, you know, we can read Matthew 24 and, and Revelation and try to get some things out of that. But, you know, it's been 2,000 years since Jesus came back. And... You know, he may come back this year, next year. It might be in 10 years, but it might be another 500 years. It might be another 1,000 years. We don't know the answer to that question. Mm -hmm. And a wise man would continue to live, uh, you know, hope for the best, you know, plan for the worst, I guess. But uh, it's just not responsible to uh, just think that you've got it all figured out and that you know that Jesus is going to come back in a few years and that the Antichrist is going to do this and the beast is about to sit on the throne in Jerusalem. You know, you need, we, need to live, we need to live a godly Christian life and not let those mm-hmm. kind of, that kind of fear-mongering hold us back. Mm-hmm. Uh, Dean, you're not suggesting that there are people who have mispredicted the arrival of, uh, of, of, the, of Christ in the past. I can't, um, I can't I mean, think of it one instance. I don't, you know... Yeah, you're quite right, and uh, it's we should be uh, more concerned about the way we live our lives than the specific date and the hour. And a lot of people have gotten into serious trouble and discredited themselves by actually making specific to the day predictions about when all these things. Yeah, and I'm not uh, saying, that, and I'm not saying that's what you're doing. Um, uh, you know, I, I guess we're all doing it a little bit, and we need to be careful not to get uh, carried away with it, but. Uh, one of the things I hear you doing, um, and I think it's instructive, is uh, to the point where there's actually a cabal of evil folks, Luciferians, you refer to them as, sometimes you call them Satanists, um, but if there's a cabal of people who are actually um, intentionally trying to bring that about, uh, that's worth knowing about. Now, um, to the degree that you can document it, you know, you should, um, but uh, that's... uh, uh, that's not just saying, well, the scriptures say that at some point this may happen and that, you know, all the evil people will gather together and there'll be this beast and he'll place himself in the temple. Uh, and I'm aware of it, but I'm going to live my life for Jesus Christ and, and, and not let that consume me. That's one thing. It's another thing if there actually are some physical people right now in 2016 uh, that are actually conspiring to try to pull that off. Uh, if that's the case, we need to know about it. And if you've got information that can document that, we should know about it. It doesn't mean, still doesn't mean we run around like Chicken Little. Uh, Jesus never said he's coming twice. He didn't say, I'm going to come back once and rapture the church, and then I'm going to come back a second time. Um, now, that's a, uh, 
a very short argument against the rapture, but I believe that the reason that they wanted to indoctrinate the church with the rapture was so that we would not oppose this this evil. They would not oppose the world coming to this. Look at this Lucifer. They've got a show on TV called right now called Lucifer. Uh, they're building statues of Baphomet, a statue of Baphomet in, 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 in Detroit, right? They unveiled that. Uh, the world is becoming Luciferian. There's no question about it. It's becoming evil. Look at the transgender executive uh, orders that Obama's tried to pass. We see God's creation being attacked. We see transhumanizing experiments carried out with DNA as if we we're headed back to the days of uh, the, the Genesis 6 and the book of Enoch, the pre-flood days talk about. So we're headed into a very evil time right now, no question about it. Um, but I think that the reason that they wanted Darby and Schofield to spread the rapture doctrine was so that the church would think we won't be around to experience it. So why oppose it? Why oppose all these things? And I think that goes along with the separation doctrine. Don't get involved with film and in movies and businesses, leave that in the hands of worldly people. But I've but I've said a, a pretty long story. Well, that's no, kind of that's, the last thing I wanted to touch on tonight was the rapture. Yeah, well, that's uh, yeah, the rapture. Gosh, what would be my my quick answer to the rapture question? You know, of uh, uh, Jesus says in Matthew twenty four, he he who perseveres to the end shall be saved. Mm -hmm. So why is he why is he going to say that if if everybody's going to get raptured out? Um, so uh, we're going to be in the tribulation. And uh, there's there's tribulation now, and there'll be tribulation in the future, and we're called as Christians to persevere. So that's that would be my main argument why there's not a rapture. But there is a rapture. It just it, it just it happens at the same time as Christ coming back. Christ comes back. We we get raptured up. Yes. The dead the dead uh, are mm -hmm. raised, uh, and there's the great judgment. Well, let's close with uh, just you know focusing on the fact on positive that. Uh, that uh, the the true Israel of God is Jesus Christ. He fulfills uh, all the prophecies of the Old Testament. Um, he's mm -hmm. the one who um, is the promised seed of Abraham, mm -hmm. and it's in Christ that all the promises to Abraham are ultimately fulfilled. And in Christ, uh, the nations are one, and in Christ, uh, the nations are discipled. And through Christ, uh, the earth itself is, uh, is redeemed and restored. And so what started with um, Adam and Eve and, then, and, uh, and the patriarchs and, Moses and Noah, but then God's plan moved to Abraham and to his descendants. And so God worked through Abraham and his people and the people of Israel. And that plan, through Jesus Christ, expanded and now has blossomed and and shown its fruit in the whole world being restored in Jesus Christ, who is the true Israel of God. So uh, that's a that's a positive way to end this uh, fantastic uh, interview. But uh, thank you for your time. I, boy, I love talking to you. And uh, there's there's a lot of other topics we could talk on, and we probably ought to do that in the future. So let's let's plan on doing that. Um, but thank you for this one. This is a big one. Uh, 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 let's, let's all be in prayer because this is a spiritual warfare topic that uh, has lots of intensity, but um, Jesus Christ is Lord. And if, if that's our focus, then uh, uh, we'll get through it. Uh, this battle is definitely a spiritual one. Uh, the evil forces, as we know, uh, we're dealing with the principalities and powers that are evil that are ultimately over this uh, human dimension that we see carrying out this uh, New World Order agenda. And at the same time, those of us who are uh, standing for truth and light uh, are also uh, part of uh, the spiritual 
the uh, the spiritual uh, nature of God, which uh, we try to embrace and try to uh, uh, obey God's uh, commandments in our lives. So I only want to uh, just uh, commend you for uh, starting your podcast, and it's really uh, a real treat to talk to a Christian who is uh, both knowledgeable about world events and also has a very uh, clear understanding of uh, the nature of Christ and uh, what the Bible's saying, uh, which is, uh, the Schofield Reference Bible is an example of how that's been twisted for, uh, this has been twisted over the years. Theology has been twisted for one agenda or another. So it's been a delight to, to speak to you. I know we've been at it for a long time. But uh, what I said at the beginning of my article on Christian Zionism is one reason why this article is so long, when you got a fat onion, you got a lot of layers to peel off. Yeah, well, you did a great job with it, and uh, and there's more to do. But listen, have a great night, and uh, jamesperloff.com, J-A-M-E-S-P-E-R-L-O-F-F.com. And also uh, order his most recent book, Truth is a Lonely Warrior, and uh, and uh, look for his uh, articles uh, that he that he comes out with, and uh, and listen to his most recent podcast like this one coming out. All right, have a great night, James. Okay, thank you, Dean. Bye.